Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearFreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers, for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're joined by Debbie Boone, a true legend in the field of veterinary practice management. You'll get a behind-the-scenes look at the workings of a veterinary hospital, what to look for when you choose yours, and some tips on how to better navigate the costs of your pet's care. So today we're talking with Debbie and we're talking all about the real deal of what it's like to be a veterinarian, veterinary nurse, or veterinary professionals. We're going to get into the nitty gritty of what the work behind the scenes of a vet hospital is really like. And we're going to talk about fear free, why fear free is important and the difference it makes in the lives of pets and the people who care for them and love them. So Debbie, so great to have you here with us today. Thank you, Michaela. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, uh, all kinds of subjects I love to talk about. So, Debbie, can you give me an idea about your unique background that gives you such unique insight into the veterinary hospital and really both sides of the equation, the pet parent and their pet, as well as the veterinary professionals in the hospital? Sure. Well, I grew up, my family owned restaurants, so I grew up in the hospitality industry and learned as a very young kid to work with the public. And I always wanted to be a veterinarian. I was one of those kids. <clears throat> so I went to North Carolina State. I have a degree in animal science in the pre-vet curriculum. And after four years, I decided I did not want to go to vet school. And instead, um, I got married. But I still wanted to be in that space. So I started working in an animal hospital as a part-time receptionist. And then later on, moved up to be the hospital administrator of that hospital. And so I managed hospitals for 23 years. Uh, I worked the front desk for about 15 of those and brought that, you know, hospitality into the medical field, which I think is something we all should be doing. Your dad's a perfect example of that, right? <laughs> yeah. Can, can you describe that a little bit more, like, like what that really means to you, like in the yeah. practical day to day? Well, you know, one of the things that is so important to me and I believe, you know, as a pet owner, um, is that my veterinary team is connected to me, that I know that they care about me and my pet and not that they just know me, that they've paid attention. And that active listening to my concerns and to, you know, my fears, my anxiety. And that's one of the reasons I think it's so important for animal hospital teams to be fear-free certified because we are truly all just animals. Just We just happen to be at the top of the food chain. And those responses that we have um, for fear, anxiety, and stress are the same ones that our pets have when we bring them into the hospital. So understanding fear-free not only helps us with the animals that come into our hospital, but it also helps us with our teammates and with our clients who come in. So for someone who's never he heard of Fear Free, how would you describe Fear Free? For me, it is understanding animal behavior at the most basic level. So it's the, the reactions, the limbic brain response reactions that we have to outside stimuli. It's understanding what causes those animals to be timid or to be stressed or even to be aggressive when they are so afraid. And, and I think the perspective 
um, that Fear Free gives veterinary teams is that we, in the past, may have thought these animals were acting out um, as humans do, you know, out of anger or some kind of emotion. But when we realize that animals are not that complex in their emotions, what they're generally acting out of is terror, a <laughs> uh, strange situation. And it's uh, maybe they had an experience in the past that caused them anxiety. And then, you know, old school handling or somebody who wasn't aware that they were signaling distress um, did not modify their behavior to help the animal overcome their stress. So Fear Free is just training animal handlers to understand the emotion of the animal and to modify our behaviors to make the trip to the veterinary hospital or in any situation that we're handling the animals, whether it's grooming or training um, or just even in your home environment to make it a better emotional uh, experience for the animal. So when you talk about fear, anxiety, and stress and that difference, like what, in what ways have you seen that just the concern for an animal's emotional state and that care provided, like how have you seen that change through all of your years of experience? Oh my gosh. Well, I can really remember being the manager of a veterinary hospital. And one of the first things that you used to train untrained staff members was to how to restrain a cat. And the cats were restrained by either throwing a towel over them or stretching them out, which meant you hold the scruff of the neck and the back legs and you kind of stretched them out so they couldn't wiggle around and the veterinarians would examine them and do work. And now we realize that really with cats and most animals, less is more. Nobody wants to, to go into basically a, you know, being tied down or straitjacket. So that certainly made a lot of difference. And then the, um, I think the restraint techniques are probably the most, the major difference I see. Like, you know, there were, there were veterinary technicians who were trained to restrain by kind of putting arms around the animals and holding them still and not really understanding that when you restrain an animal that much, that's afraid, it just becomes more afraid. It becomes a struggle for life or death in the mind of the animal. And then what do we do? We restrain more uh, or we get another person to help us restrain. And a lot of times clients don't understand that this is really causing more harm than good because they want us to kind of power through, just get it done, right? Just get it done. But having a little patience with an animal, um, very similar. I always think about zoo animals, you know, zoo animals are huge. So they have to be cooperative with their handlers and you don't get restrained a rhinoceros. You have it collaborate with you <laughs> to get its care done. So it's very much the same thing. I think that's the, the biggest difference I see is just because it, most animal um, hospitals that I've worked in have been small animal in hospitals. Uh, they have used just physical restraint to care for animals. Now, sometimes it is absolutely necessary. If the animal is, his life is in danger, you don't have time, then you've got to do whatever it is you've got to do to save its life. So I'm not saying we never restrain an animal just because, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I worked in a mixed animal practice and 
look, working with equine veterinarians and uh, cows and sheep, and you just don't manhandle them to get um, the work done. So can you give some examples of like what handling of a cat might look like? If you have a cat that is showing signs of fear, anxiety, and stress, or, or that's escalating to aggression, what might a, a different fear-free approach be to tackling that situation as opposed to using more um, or increased restraint? Right. Well, <clears throat> so many times it is the environment outside that causes the stress to the cat. So you start out with talking to the owner about how the cat is even transported to the hospital because we put them in a carrier. <clears throat> we bang them against every wall in the house. We throw them in the back of the car. Uh, I laughingly play loud music, drive badly, uh, pull into the parking spot, bang them into more walls, sit them on the floor where dogs bark at them. And poor cat, by the time it's time for the veterinarian to reach in there and help it, it's like, ah, you know, it's freaked out. So teaching pet owners, first of all, to, you know, carry the carrier like uh, a present, a gift, and not slosh the cat all around in the carrier, put it well restrained in the back of the car so that it's not flopping all around. Um, even playing classical music um, or reggae is very helpful for animals on their trip to the veterinarian. They could also start a couple of weeks ahead of time putting good canned food or something that a treat that the animal really loves in that carrier to acclimate the cat to the carrier. So it's not always a bad experience to go to the care in, into the carrier and get hauled to the vet to get vaccines that sometimes there's really good stuff in the carrier and that helps the cat relax. You can also use uh, pheromone sprays that the veterinary hospitals use uh, and they can spray it on their clothing. They can have little, pheromone atomizers working in the rooms that spray uh, calming pheromones out so that kitties are more relaxed. And then instead of manhandling the cat and forcing it to go where you want it to go, you just open the carrier, take the top off, maybe leave the cat in the carrier. One of my clinics has been uh, fear-free certified since day one. And prior to that was gold certified in Sophia Yen's uh, behavior. So they actually made a little PVC cube that they put a beach blanket, a beach towel over, and they will let the cats go under this beach blanket. And then they just lift one little corner up of the cube and they do what they need to do for the cat. They lower the corner of the blanket back down and then they kind of tap the cat. And it goes back into its carrier. So the whole time the cat is in this safe space that it's not seeing a lot of outside stimuli and it feels much more relaxed. And so going into that animal hospital is like going into a spa. Everything is calm. All the animals are quiet. The dogs are actually pulling their owners into the building instead of trying to run the other direction. And to me, that's the difference that appropriate handling and understanding distraction and fear-free makes in a veterinary visit for an animal. Um, food, you know, bring the cat hungry and then let the veterinary team give it tasty treats. And these can escalate up from little crunchy things to, you know, frozen popsicles with chicken broth. There's, there's all kinds of varieties and veterinarians are very creative. But one of my favorite treats is Cheerios because every dog 
that lives in a house with kids, eats Cheerios off the floor, and the association is positive. So Cheerios are a great treat to keep in the animal hospital to give dogs. I like I like using Cheerios as well. I've definitely used those with uh, also with miniature pigs that I've trained and you know, dogs are perfect. And so, yeah, I, I love all of those examples. As you were talking, you painted such a picture of like what that vet visit looks like and how it really does start in the home. And you mentioned a couple things about the carrier and like how it's placed in the car, as well as, you know, the potential of having a top removal carrier. So like one where the top uh, comes off. Can you explain a little bit more about what you might look like or what you might look for? Can you explain a little bit more about what you might look for in a carrier and where that carrier might be placed in the car? Sure. Um, you know, there are <clears throat> multiple carriers on the market, but what we want to make sure is that the carrier is easy to open the top, especially for the cats. Some of them I've seen that look like a little airline carrier that have the little grid at the top where you can open the top back up. Um, one of the ones I know we we look at for fear free uh, is the sleepy pod because the sleepy pod just kind of it's where they sleep all the time and this little cover comes over they can still see out. So a lot of the carriers have screws or latches on the side where the lid will lift off and then the cat can stay in that um, in that lid. Now in the car, you know, if you're going to put it like if you have a hatchback, if you're going to put it in the hatchback of the car, make sure the cat, you know, is, is kind of covered up. Sometimes uh, some of the animal hospitals that I've worked with will take a little baby blanket and they'll infuse that with hormones and then they will put that over the top of the carrier. So the cat's not seeing traffic or dogs going by or, you know, any of the things. Cats don't like to leave their environment. <laughs> they are not happy when they are taking trips. So we want to keep them covered up <clears throat> so that they will be relaxed and that pheromone is in there. But we also want to secure the carrier because we don't want it slip. If you have to hit the brakes, we certainly don't want it flying across the car or running, you know, into the back of the back seat. So put some kind of uh, a secure tie down on the carrier or put the seat belt on the carrier. You can put it through the uh, top handle and then latch it so that it is secure and it is not, you know, flailing around as you drive and start and stop in traffic. Um, <clears throat> When you get to the animal hospital, again, keeping it covered is great, but you, instead of holding it by that top handle, hold it by the sides and carry the cat in level so that it feels like it's, you know, again, it's about security and we don't want them feeling like the, you know, they're in the earthquake <laughs> coming into the animal hospital. You would, you would be unsettled if that happened to you too. So we want to make sure that we're keeping them as steady and secure as possible and then when we do take it into the exam room, you know, we sit it probably up on a table. Some of the fear-free animal hospitals actually have little high counters that are made for cat carriers to sit on because cats being both prey and predator, they really like a perch. And so when we put them up on a perch, it gives them a little more security because they're not worried about something attacking them um, on the ground. I really like all of those tips that you, you brought right there. And one of them made me think of, and this is something I've been looking at recently, is really securing that pet in the car. So when we look at carriers for like small animals, I, I 
One of the reasons why I am such a big fan of Sleepy Pod is because it's one of the few companies that has their products crash tested and approved the same standards that, that they do for children. So it's uh, that's one really cool thing about Sleepy Pod and, and and some of those. But one thing I would encourage people to do is to actually look for the Center for Pet Safety. Uh, go on there and look at what carriers and harnesses and crates are actually crash tested and approved. And you will be kind of shocked and somewhat horrified if you're like me to see how few actually hold up in the event of a crash or a sudden stop and how many actually can put the pet in danger. So, you know, first of all, we always do want to think of containment for the safety of the pet. So you know, reducing driver distraction. If we do get in an accident or we're just getting our pet in and out, we want to be sure that they are comfortable and that they're safe. But then also that part of if we do get in an accident where the pet is placed. So for those carriers or crates that aren't crash tested and approved, one thing you may think about doing is even placing them right behind the driver or the passenger front seat. So right there in the in the middle seat, right behind that driver's seat, that can help tuck them in there nicely. And then for those that are crashes tested and approved, you know, that's where, as Debbie mentioned, being able to buckle those in nicely. Um, or for those crates, like there are, you know, for bigger dogs, there are somewhat fewer options for crates that have been crash tested and approved, but there are more options for harnesses. So uh, Sleepy Pod, for instance, has a great click it harness that has been crash tested and approved for dogs up to 110 pounds. So that's one that we use with our big dog, Nova. But also, you know, if we are using a crate, having it secured behind in, in the back seat in the cargo area with the seats up, you know, looking at at, uh, at those tie down straps, making sure that they actually are going to be able to hold up in, a, in the event of a crash. And a lot of them ne won't necessarily be able to hold all that weight in that horse. So uh, definitely some things to look into that I think are, are important because I, I know I didn't realize just the, the risks that were cause to pets, um, first of all, you know, riding around unsecured, but then also riding in things like booster seats or travel seats or being strapped in in harnesses or, or on zip lines that actually can increase the danger to the pet by actually almost like clotheslining them or boomeranging them in the event of a crash and, and causing mm -hmm. some really severe injury. So definitely something to look into. Yeah, I've, I've always put my dogs in uh, seatbelt harnesses and, you know, put them in the back seat. But I will give you an example. I just bought a new dog and I bought a, a Bichon and the breeder told me that she had a, one of her owners um, had his dog riding in his lap and it was in an accident and the dog slammed up against the dashboard and it broke his back and the dog had to be euthanized. So these are things that I guess working in a veterinary hospital for so many years, you see that people don't know what we know. We You see that they don't, you know, the, the dog's riding in the back of pickup trucks. Just, it's like chalk on a blackboard. I mean, you know, scraping your nails on a blackboard to me. Because I've seen dogs uh, fall out of those trucks and get run over. I've seen the, you know, them basically have road rash and be degloved from being dragged down the road if they were tied in. And it's just so dangerous. And, you know, keeping... I mean, people have their dogs with their heads hanging out the window and they go, oh, but the dog loves it. Yes, but the dog is going to get flying debris in his eyes or in his ears. And and if something happens that he happened to see something just too good to pass up, can easily jump out the car window and be killed. So you know, if you work in a veterinary hospital for 30 years, like I did, you tend to see all the the things that happen because people did not know. 
um, to prevent these things. And so I'm, I'm a little paranoid about my animals, I, you know, because of what I've seen in my life. Um, but, you know, better safe Absolutely. than sorry. And I, I feel like once you know better, you do better. And I just don't think a lot of people necessarily know the potential dangers that are posed to their pets. And, you know, another thought is even just, you know, making that change of having your pet in the front seat to having them in the back seat. That's going to make a huge difference. So just like with children, pets are at very high risk in the event of airbags going off and deploying. And our pets are, are small. They aren't built and, and those airbags are not made for, for an animal their size. So um, especially one that's that's not secured properly. So we always want to make sure they're at least in the backseat, but definitely looking at, at having them in a harness carrier or crate and having it fixed in the car in a way that actually is going to keep them safe. And and be aware if you are strapping a carrier or crate down, uh, be, be aware to kind of look at actually the safety guidelines on that. And for those that haven't been crash tested and approved, then that's where, you know, for the smaller carriers, especially putting those behind the front driver or passenger seat is a good idea. So, so Debbie, uh, I, I was interested when you were talking about some of those catastrophic injuries. And I know that that's one thing my, my dad, my mom, so my dad being a veterinarian, my mom, you know, as I was a little kid, she's, you know, she was there helping him a lot in the hospital. And I know that they definitely have some of those horror stories of pets that came in at different times, like falling out of a truck, for instance, and being dragged behind. And, you know, in some of those cases, I, I know that the the vet bills can just be astronomical. And, you know, it, it so I'm going into this from both sides, because I, I understand this from my the perspective of my friends, and as well as any of my clients who, you know, maybe they don't understand, like, why costs can be so high, but then also seeing it from the veterinary side and knowing the inside scoop of really what's going on behind the scenes. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I hear of is that vets are only in it for the money or, you know, it's like, you know, why wouldn't they help my pet? You know, this is, this is ridiculous. It's so expensive. Can you like jump into that with me about like why that is so common and, and what you have to say about that? Well, it, for me, it has, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. First of all, um, a veterinary practice is a business and it has to support the people who work there. But there also is a lot of miscommunication about why the services need to be done. Because to many people in the animal health profession, many things are very obvious to us. We, we understand anatomy. We live in this world of medicine and we don't understand that 80% of most of our clients are medically ignorant. Uh, I know my mom is 89 and I always go to the doctor with her because she doesn't understand what the doctor is saying to her. And that's not because she's an ignorant woman. She ran five businesses as, you know, she's an entrepreneur, but she's not medically fluent. And so I think sometimes we don't do a good job of communicating the value of what we're asking uh, people to pay for. Um, the other thing is we are um, not subsidized in any way. And so there's a, there's a misconception. And of course, we have only about three or 4% of every pet in the United States now has pet insurance. So that means what 96% of them are uninsured. And I would say that probably 90% of humans in the United States have insurance. So we're really used to human health and going in and paying our little copay and then having some other provider pay the bulk of the fee. Um, so I can, I can give you an example from my own life. 
Um, I, at the age of 46, was diagnosed with breast cancer. So my treatment in six months for surgery and reconstruction and chemotherapy and radiation was over $125,000. Now, I didn't pay for that. But if I had to pay for it out of my pocket, it would have cost me even more because that was negotiated insurance prices too. So we don't have that in veterinary medicine. So we have to pay for the same things that human hospitals pay for. We have laser therapy. We have anesthesia machines. We have blood monitors. We have EKGs. Um, So all those things are very expensive. I often talk to clients and, and just show them one cage, a stainless steel cage in a recovery area of a hospital. I, the last thing I, I think I bought was in 2005, and that just one cage was $500. So when you start to put 25 or 30 in your recovery area, then you can see how all this moves up. You know, a laser, um, a digital x-ray machine, close to $100,000. So all these tools that we have to have are the same tools that they have in human medicine, but we don't have insurance that's covering those costs. And then if veterinarians uh, actually wanted to make a lot of money, they would not be veterinarians. They would go to human medicine and they absolutely are capable because veterinarians are some of the smartest people walking the earth. They have, they are A and A plus students. In order to get into veterinary school, you have to have a higher grade point average than it is you have to have to get into human medical school. And there are less veterinary schools than human medical schools. So there are few and far between people who can actually make the cut and get into veterinary school. And they are very, very smart people. Uh, Over the years, I cannot tell you how many times I have had a medical problem and gone to my veterinarian and said, does this sound right? (laughs) Because I think they're much better diagnosticians than humans are because our patients can't talk. Oh, so true. And it's, they're not treating just one species. It's a myriad of different species, which is just amazing. That kind of work. I, I was reading today on the average debt for veterinary students. And that's one thing I don't think people realize either is the tremendous debt that a lot of vet students have once they graduate. And uh, so the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, said that veterinary students in the U.S. that graduated in 2018 had an average of $150,000 in debt. And then the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that the median annual wage for veterinarians in 2018 was about $94,000. But those starting salaries are oftentimes a lot lower than that. And I know from a a lot of my veterinary friends and from my father, a lot of veterinarians are working really long hours. They're putting in a lot of work and a lot of that can be unpaid. And uh, there was a quote actually within this article from uh, Dr. Molly McAllister of Portland, Oregon. That's where my brother is. And she first entered the field in 2004 and took her first veterinary job for $22,000 a year with $90,000 in debt from a vet school. And I think that that story is pretty common for a lot of people. So, so can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, many years ago, the government subsidy to college was reduced 
and all college tuition has gone up. But veterinarians have to take usually three to four years of undergraduate, and then they're going to four years of veterinary school. The books alone are unbelievably expensive, three and four hundred dollars a piece. And so, you know, the, the same debt is for human. So if you think about, it, OK, I'm I could go to veterinary school and I could be close to I think the stats are up to more than two hundred thousand dollars now. Or I could go to human medical school and I would have the same debt load. But when I get out of school, I'm going to make ninety thousand dollars a year as a veterinarian and I'm going to make $250,000 a year as a starting physician. So veterinarians obviously are not in it for the money. They absolutely could go to medical school if they wanted to, but they have a passion for helping animals, and that's why they do what they do. And I think sometimes people, um, veterinarians really struggle when they are talking about money. They try to avoid talking about money because they're they don't want to talk about it. I mean, if they, in an ideal world, they would do it all for free just because they want to help the animals. But they also realize that they need to feed their families. They need to put a roof over their heads and that their staff deserves a living wage too. And this is, you know, another problem. If you think about the veterinary technicians, um, they go to either two years of school, um, costing them about twenty to $30,000. And many of them are making less than $15 an hour, which is just incredible because these are people who are as talented and as skilled as a registered nurse and with the same basic level of education. And a registered nurse is probably making $45 or more an hour. So there's a, there's a huge wage disparity. Um, and that has a lot to do with the fact that there is no insurance for the most part in veterinary medicine to cover the actual cost of having good staff wages, um, having appropriate pay for veterinarians, and even benefits. I mean, I can remember working the first 19 years of my career, and I had no health insurance at my work. Um, so my husband, thank goodness he did it at his job, and that was how we were covered. But yeah, no insurance. And I had a couple of weeks of vacation and some free pet care. And that was the extent of the benefits. So there's, um, there's definitely people who go into veterinary medicine are doing it just because they, they want to be in that world. They want to love animals. But the, you know, the, the sad part about it now is it has become so difficult and we are short staffed and it, there's a lot of pressure. A lot of people during the pandemic got pets. So there's a huge demand and many people are leaving veterinary medicine because they just say, it's just not worth it. I can't take the difficult clients who are mad at me because I can't take care of their animal or they can't afford for, to take care of their animal. And so our talent is disappearing, which is terrifying to me as a pet owner, because we really need these exceptional people to be taking care of our pets, especially when you know, there's a time that they're in oh, stress. Gosh. I, yeah. So well said there. So as you're talking about veterinarians, veterinary nurses, and some of that, that emotional toil that is taken upon them and, and also those physical demands, like in, in what ways are those 
emotional demands like wearing on veterinary professionals. I know we talk a lot about compassion fatigue in the care field for humans. Like how is that similar in the veterinary field? And, and maybe in what ways is it even more pronounced? Yeah. Well, there's, there's compassion fatigue mm -hmm. and burnout happening in our profession. And that tends to happen when you have lots of stressors. Again, going back to our fear-free, we have um, a staff shortage, which means the people who are showing up for work are working much, much harder than they should be working uh, to, to care for the animals that are coming in. We have a client high demand, but there's only so much a physically a human can do. And veterinary medicine is a very physical job. Um, you are on the floor, you are standing a lot, you are lifting 50 and 60 pound animals. They are pulling you down the hall and jumping out into your arms out of cages. Um, they are, you know, under anesthesia, they're complete dead weight and you're trying to lift them up and put them into a recovery cage. So there's so much physical damage that also happens to um, the bodies of veterinary team members when they are doing this work. It's one of the things I really am trying to get the American Animal Hospital Association to work on is um, ergonomic and physical guidelines for veterinary teams, because sometimes we just, um, we work with equipment that is not well designed to protect our knees, our backs, and our bodies, um, then we could do a much better job of that. So there's, there's just physical wear and tear and chronic pain that is happening from all the ups and downs and the lifting. And then you have the emotional distress. Here are people who are highly empathetic, especially to animals. And then they're in situations where all the bad stuff happens, right? We're not seeing the, the litters of puppies and kittens out there playing in the backyard which is what we would love to, to do. But what we're seeing is animals in distress, animals in pain, animals, you know, neglected, animals suffering, uh, even uh, mental suffering for these animals. And we're trying to, to help them as best we can. And there's always the limitation of what the owners will allow us to do because legally animals are property. And even though we feel like their family and many of their owners feel like their family when it comes to making those decisions, the pet owner is the ultimate say. And so if we have an animal and we know we could fix it, but the owner says, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, it's not worth it to me. I'm not going to spend the money. You need to put it to sleep. And this is an animal that could be saved. That breaks our hearts. So that's tough. And then there are the cases of neglect. Um, so those are really, really hard to see. And then there are times when owners just don't understand why we have to charge for the things that we do. And they get very angry at us and accusatory. And then it's, you don't care about anything but the money, which is, you know, I, I've been hearing that since 1985, so it's not anything new that's happening right now. It's it's always been that way. Um, but what animal owners need to know is that we are here to help, but we can't help without cooperation and a plan. So my encouragement to animal pet owners is to 
either set aside funds in case of emergency or to have pet insurance in case of emergency. You don't have to you don't have to have a policy that covers vaccines and spays and neuters. You can manage that. You can plan for that. But animals will get into stuff you just would not believe they will get into. And they will cost you a lot of money. And you, you, there's no logic behind this, but there is no logic behind what animals will eat or get into. Um, over the years, I have seen them eat corn cobs, those big sea sponges that you wash the car with, balls from a sycamore tree, which basically look like a porcupine. Um, and then they even running and playing. And you know, we think, oh, how benign is to throw a stick to your dog? We watched a border collie come into our hospital with a one foot long stick stuck in the corner of its eye. And our, fortunately, we had an ophthalmologist there. But what had happened is the dog, the owner threw the stick, the stick stuck in the ground. The dog ran to get the stick and it impaled this stick through its right eye. It came very close to the brain, but it just managed to get into the upper sinus. And fortunately, our, our board certified ophthalmologist removed it and the dog went home. But they get into stuff that you just don't expect them to. So that is why I, I really encourage pet insurance um, and expect the unexpected. Um, I, I think I told you just before we start, I just got a new dog. He's roaming in, into everything, but he is leashed to me. He's got a six foot lesion. I know where he is at all times. And my husband is like, well, why, why don't you let him go? And I went, he can get into stuff. And he said, there's nothing here for him to get into. I said, there are plants on the floor that he cannot eat. There are um, power cords that he could chew. I said, there's all kinds of stuff that he has not learned that that's a no-no. So yeah, he can get into stuff. Why do I know this? Because I've seen it so many times over the years, you know. I uh, can't even begin to tell you how many times a cat has had a needle and thread removed from its mouth or its stomach. Why would you eat a needle and thread? And that, that definitely is helpful, too, for house training. So when we're getting a new dog to have them close at hand. So um, kudos on that. And then expanding their space over time. So I think you're very wise on that and, and to, to take some caution there. So you mentioned having pet insurance or setting aside some money. Have you looked or have you ever had any experience with any of the, the care type of plans where you pay over time? Is that something that you would ever recommend? Is that helpful? Yeah, I um, actually wrote a book with my co-author, Dr. Wendy Hauser, on how to set up monthly paid wellness plans. And the wellness plans are great when you are um looking at routine visits, you know, where you want to have their teeth clean once a year, the vaccines are included in that, you know, there, so there, you can spread it out over time. Um, there are also other options, like we should, in the veterinary profession, have options for our clients to make payments. Um, companies like Vet Billing that do auto drafting on, you know, so we can split a payment up. There's Oh, gosh, things like care credit that is zero financing for six months. Um, the other option is one called split it that allows you to split your fees up. So there's a lot of different ones out there. And 
I've always believed that we should offer as many different options for our clients as we can, because our job is to help, right? It is, it is not to say, well, this is all we've got and you got to figure out the rest of it. Um, I even have on my website <clears throat> a list of helpful ideas for owners to help finance their pet's care, because sometimes in moments of distress, we can't really think what to do, right? We're the animal is sick. We need to come up with a couple of thousand dollars and we know we don't have it in our bank account. So what do we do? Well, this list is something that veterinary hospitals could give to owners to help them get ideas. I mean, you could you know, ask for a pay advance from your employer. You could go to a pawn shop and if you have a, you know, a shotgun or a piece of gold jewelry, maybe you put that in the pawn shop. You could get a title loan. You could get, um, you know, friends and family. Uh, if you have, you know, not burnt through all your friends and family, because sometimes people have, <laughs> but if you have a good relationship with your friends and family, um, you can crowdsource it on social media. So there's a lot of people out there who are willing to help. And then there are also a list of charities online that, you know, you could go and apply to those online charities. Many of them very specific for cats or just border collies or, you know, there's all kinds of stuff on there. So we need to, to help people figure this out um, as part of the veterinary uh, service to our clients, because we do know it is expensive. And many people who work in veterinary medicine couldn't afford to have the work done that we can do ourselves. You know, so we we understand how expensive it is, but we don't have an option about that because we have vendors who are charging us X amount of dollars for the drugs or however much they're going to charge for the equipment that we use. And we know that we need to pay our really hardworking people uh, a good living wage. And so all that costs money and that money is transferred to the client in the cost of fees. So you mentioned earlier that for a lot of veterinarians, the, the discussion of money, when it comes up, it's something that, that's uncomfortable that maybe they want to avoid. And I think that that also can be on the pet owner side too. So if someone can't afford something, it's like, oh gosh, you know, what am I going to do? I feel and it's like this like burden or almost that sense of like, I'm not a good pet parent because I can't do this. And I mean, so for me, my, my dad and my, my mom, they were so generous on giving me money to go to college. But, you know, as soon as I graduated, you know, I was on my own and I was making $1,200 a month and, and new baby. And I definitely have been there where, you know, it was like literally paycheck to paycheck kind of thing. And, you know, and, and being far away from my dad as a vet, so I couldn't necessarily, you know, go to him. And uh, one thing that I learned from my dad and through fellow veterinary friends I've made through the years is being able to, to have that discussion with them and to ask them like, okay, what is, what are the essentials? Like if this was your pet and, you know, and these were your resources, like what would you recommend? And in some cases, you know, there are certain things that maybe we don't necessarily have to do. So my dad likes to just describe it almost as like, you know, we have a gold level, a silver level, platinum level, like, uh, you know, so we have bronze, like, so, you know, this is like, you know, gold standard of care, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's not, um, you know, we can still be a really good pet parent and, you know, and still provide for them, but we maybe don't necessarily always have to go all the way up to like the very top pinnacle of, you know, if it's, if it's very stressful on us to, and, you know, that stress really, 
like transfers to the pet as well, I think. So I know that for me, like for instance, in and sometimes it's things like, you know, uh, going from one one veterinary hospital to a specialist, for instance, in some cases, you can use your your blood tests that were taken at the, the other veterinarian if it's been a, a, within the same time window, like or an appropriate time window. And so rather than having to redo them, like they're just little tiny things like that that have like really made a difference, especially when I really needed that extra help. So how, how have you like seen that discussion play out between pet owners and veterinary professionals? And, and what would your recommendations be there? Well, I think, first of all, realize that the veterinarians are not judging you if you are honest with us and say, I really can't afford to do that, but I want to do something. I want to help. So what else can we do? And I think veterinary schools are actually starting to see that, you know, when, you, when you're trained in a veterinary school, you are trained to the gold standard. And this is all cutting edge medicine that's happening in the veterinary schools, but that's not necessarily practical medicine. And so I've talked a lot about being practical with people in um, the years that I've worked in the hospital. So I, you know, in, in my own situation, I had a dog with Cushing's disease. We did the blood test. It's a very expensive blood test. It costs a couple hundred dollars. And then the specialist at the lab wanted to do another blood test after, you know, a, a trial of this period of this medicine. And I went, why? Because I can tell you that the medicine is not having an effect on him and there is no point in running that blood work. And my veterinarian agreed with me. But then again, you know, I hired him when he got out of school. So, so, you know, you have to have honest uh, and open discussions with your veterinarian. And if you can say this is beyond what I can manage, what can we do? And a lot of times things can be piecemealed out. Um, you could say, okay, today, you know, I get paid Friday. So today, what can we do today? I have this much money. And then Friday, when I come back, I, I have some more money and I can pay me do some more Friday. And maybe the next week I can do a little bit more. I, I think veterinarians have a all or nothing mentality a lot of times because they feel like it inconveniences people to come to the veterinary hospital. So they're trying to do everything that they can in one fell swoop. But for me, I've always thought it was easier to spend $200 twice than $350 once, and it was $400. So we always tried to space things out for people that, you know, needed some help with that um, affordability. Not everything has to be done right now. You know, some things can wait a week. Some things can wait, you know, a medication can wait or you know, one more week is not going to matter. Uh, starting a dog on arthritis medicine, he's been painful before that one week from now, he'll still be painful, but we could start the medicine then when people have more money. So we just need to work with our clients and have an open discussion and say, you know, what are your available funds? What can we do? Here's why this one, this test is imperative, or, you know, we, we're wasting your money if we don't do this test particularly. Um, but I think students are learning as they come out of school to, um, to do what's called spectrum of care. It's, uh, it's, it's not new terminology. It's not new work. It's basically practical, kind of old school, what veterinarians used to do back when your dad was first starting and I was first starting in vet med, where we said, we're going to work with the client as best we can 
um, to get this animal well. And it might not be, you know, everything that we can do and the very best thing that we know to do, but it will help and it won't harm. Um, I've actually seen my veterinarian way back in the day uh, have a puppy come in with really early stage mild case of parvo. The owners had nothing, nothing. And he said, the key to parvo is keeping your dog hydrated. It's just like the flu with a child. So he sent them home and said, feed this dog chicken broth every hour on the hour and keep it hydrated. And they did. And the dog lived. So that kind of practical stuff is within the spectrum of veterinary medicine to do to help people be able to care for their animals in some way, shape or form. Now you have some pet owners who want the, they want the very best, you know, there's, it's first class or nothing. And I think sometimes veterinarians also have been, um, they're a little fearful that if they don't go whole hog, that there's going to be a complaint that they didn't do enough if the animal doesn't survive. So I think there's some fear um, on that side too, that says, oh, if I don't do it all, then somebody's going to send me to the board. They're going to look at my records and say, well, why didn't you do test A, B, and C, even though the owner couldn't afford it, right? So we're still, we're kind of stuck in a, a bad middle place. Um, but rarely does that happen. And I think that's a, an unwarranted fear when you have good communication with your clients and say, look, yeah, there's a whole lot more we can do, but I'm, I'm going to work with what you've got available and I want you to understand what we've got available. And I think that, you know, this will help. It's a start. At least it's a start. And then Absolutely. we go from there. You mentioned the prescription. So something like uh, Rimadil for a pet that's suffering from, from arthritis, for instance, that can be somewhat spendy um, at times. And great one. I use it with my my pug, for instance, my or my puggle mix. So Indiana Bones, who uh, has some some different issues with his uh, actually not having formed knees. So he, he's a unique little guy and, uh, and he can have quite a bit of pain. And so that, that, that medication really does help. And, but when we look at expensive medications, there are a few things that I've learned from my dad and from other veterinary professionals on how to better handle those, those costs and mitigate them. Uh, but first I want to ask you, like, what are some ways that people could look at cutting down the expenses of some of the, the medications that they need for their pet? Yeah. Well, you know, for one thing, you can ask for generics because generics are bioequivalent to the name brand. And sometimes maybe they might not work as well, it, it, but then again, sometimes they might work better than the other. It, every animal, it, just like every human, is a very unique um, body. And how we react to drugs is all unique to our own uh, body and how it reacts. So, there's possibilities like that, but start there. Say, can I have, you know, a smaller amount? And, you know, I can come back uh, every 10 days and buy some more, but I don't have to buy 30 at the same time. So, because it's too much of a burden, sure, we can do that. Um, and don't be afraid or, or embarrassed to say to your veterinary team, I can you just give me a 10, I'll come back, but give me 10 and 10 and 10. Um, online pharmacies, for, from the veterinary. Now, I really, I want to caution people here about online pharmacies because there is a huge difference between 
some of the legit online pharmacies and some of the shady online pharmacies. And even the FDA has a warning on their website about pet pharmacies that actually are selling counterfeit products, are stealing people's credit information. Um, I've actually, I mean, I, I can tell you a dozen horror stories, but one in particular struck me as a client who ordered uh, albuterol, which is for asthma, for her, their cat. And they ordered it from a pharmacy in India and they received it um, only to find out that the cat wasn't getting any better. So when they sent it off for testing, they found out they had bought a vial of water. And yes, and there was more than $5,000 charged on their credit card in this foreign country because it was just a phishing site and they had had their, their identity stolen. So I think people really need to use a lot of caution. Um, you know, obviously Chewy has been in the market for quite a while and now the um, big pharmaceutical companies do sell to Chewy. But the safest bet is to always buy from your veterinarian because we know where these products have come from. We know how they have been handled. They come direct from manufacturer right to us. They don't go through a third party and we know that they're safe. So it's, I mean, a lot of harm has, has happened. One of my very good clients ordered some heartworm preventative off of a, a sketchy site. Box looks exactly the same. And her old poodle died. The, the second oldest one got very, very sick and the youngest one got sick. So her vet bills from this, this um, product ended up costing her you know, thousands of dollars compared to just coming to us and maybe spending $5 more for the same package of stuff. So you just really need to be cautious about that. I think most veterinarians now are very, very close in price to Chewy and Pet's pet meds. Um, most of us, you know, this is a battle we don't care to fight. We just are happy that people are buying safe products and that's what we want to have happen. Um, but the other thing is to not have to use the medications in the first place. So paying attention and doing preventative care. I think this is probably the biggest thing I would tell any pet owner is Take your dog to the vet, take your cat to the vet, take your horse to the vet, have them seen once or twice a year because the most valuable thing in the veterinary hospital is the experienced veterinarian laying hands on that animal and doing a physical exam from the tip of their nose to the tip of their tail and all things in between. And then I, my pets get annual blood work um, and they have their teeth cleaned every year. So if you think about not brushing your teeth for an entire year and how nasty your teeth would be, seeds bacteria into your whole body, damages the organs, um, it's very, very important to keep the teeth clean. And people say, oh, but their teeth look clean. Well, you can have your teeth look clean and underneath the gums still have a lot of uh, bacteria growing. So keeping those teeth clean is one way to keep a lot of life in your dog for a long time. Absolutely. And less suffering and... Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. <clears throat> a couple of other thoughts that I had. So one thing that I did, and and this comes from, as I mentioned, uh, the having to be kind of a uh, just very strategic in how I use my money early on in life after graduating with, from college, being a single mom. And uh, one thing that was helpful was even looking at 
buying some medications in bulk. So sometimes if I bought a head, that could be helpful. Or also some medications you can get in a larger size and then split them down, for instance. So like something like, I, I, I mean, there are just different medications. So like the Rimadyl, for instance, rather than getting the smaller size, it actually was, was less expensive to get the bigger size. And then it just easily breaks into um, a half. Um, so that's one, one great thing that I have done as well. I would give a word of caution about splitting pills because only pills who have been scored are meant to be cut in half. That means that the medication has been equally distributed throughout the entire pill. So if you buy like HeartGuard, for example, it's a little chunky chew and you split that in half, there's an opportunity that you miss the dose of the medication because it's not designed to be cut in half. It's designed to be given whole. So really use caution with cutting pills in half. But if they have been scored appropriately and they're, that means that that's what they were meant for. That they Absolutely. I thank you for bringing that up. And, and that's so definitely before I've ever done any of that, that's also like talking that through with the veterinarian, with the veterinary team, like, is this okay? Is there a, a larger size that I can cut down into a smaller size? And so that's something that they can talk with you about. And sometimes that's more cost effective. And then another one that works well for both human medications and for pet meds is GoodRx. I am a big fan of that because you can look at, uh, so on GoodRx, you can go on, look at the type of medication, the dosage, and then you can compare it at different places. So if it is something that you're struggling with, you know, maybe Fred Meyer or Walgreens or Walmart, like you can look at all of these different options and see where you can find it the cheapest, especially if you're doing it without insurance. So those are a couple other ways that, that I have found to be really helpful as well. Yes, I agree with GoodRx. I, I took my mom, I actually downloaded, she's 89, so I downloaded GoodRx on her phone and her thyroid medication was going to cost her over $400 a year. And with GoodRx, when she gets it refilled, uh, 90 days will cost her $7. So it is significantly different. Um, and sometimes your insurance was better, sometimes GoodRx is better, but the pharmacies are used to working with both of them, but definitely download good rx so i want to close off by talking about the the really epidemic of suicide in the veterinary profession and like what that's all all about so uh, as i was reading about this some of the statistics are really alarming and and i've been really proud of my my dad dr marty becker for being so open about his own different journey with mental health. And, you know, my, my grandpa committed suicide when I was probably nine or 10 and, and went through that. And my dad too has had some really big bouts of depression and he definitely is not alone. The veterinary professionals are about three and a half times more at risk than the general population for suicide. And unfortunately it looks like that also is a, an extension too to veterinary technicians or veterinary nurses who also are at higher risk. So can you talk a little bit to that and, and kind of where you think that might come from? Yeah. Well, as I said before, you have a highly empathetic group of people who are, you know, animal advocates, and then you're putting them into a very high pressure situation where the animals that we really love and care about are often suffering. And then we're not allowed to do what we know that we can do to help them because of owner limitations. The other factor in that is that there's access. We have access to euthanasia solution. 
And, you know, I, I, my father committed suicide when I was 16. One of my best friends committed suicide five years ago on Thanksgiving day. And both of them used guns. Well, both of them were hunters. And so it's sometimes access to whatever it is, uh, the agent that has um, something to do with the ability to euthanize yourself, basically, in veterinary medicine. But it's, um, I think, in general, in the population of the United States, there's, because of COVID, because we are meant to be social animals, and we were restricted from our natural habitat, which is working with people and being part of a tribe of friends and taking away all our social activities really took a toll on our mental health, especially younger people, because it was the first big adversity that many young people had run across. And um, as I think I mentioned to you, I have a, a podcast, mine is called The Bend. And The Bend is about facing adversity in life and moving through it, having to have resilience or just putting that one foot in front of the other and how people do it, because I wanted people to have a model of how to keep going when it looked like, you know, the end of the road was coming or impossible things were happening or you were losing control of the way um, life was working out for you. So hopefully it's given some inspiration to some people. It certainly inspired me talking to my guest because people have had some amazing things happen to them and have you know, moved through the other side and have certainly come out better. I think one of the most important things that we can all have in veterinary medicine to make us feel better and to move through the, the, the tragedies that we have is hope, because hope that things will get better, hope that people are working on it, hope that the more we talk about it, the more it, the stigma of mental health um, issues disappears and there are more resources available and known to all the people who are working in the profession. And I think that goes for not just veterinary medicine, although, like I said, we are, we're a small profession and we do have a, a, a higher risk, but I do want to put it into perspective too. So every year in the United States, 42,000 people commit suicide. Um, 45,000 people lose their lives in car accidents. So it, it's still small. And I don't want veterinary medicine to become doom and gloom. It is a wonderful profession. It is something I have loved from the minute I walked in the door. And I know your dad feels the same way. And, you know, we love this profession. And I don't want, I don't want us to have a pity party because it's tough. And, and sometimes times are tough. You know, this is, we've gone through a really, really rough time in our country and in our profession. And we, but we're moving through it. And there's a lot of really great people doing good stuff to help us come out the other side. So I really want people to know there's hope that things are good. There are people like me, like your dad, who've been working in this profession for 30 years, who still love every minute of it. Um, and we need to have a louder voice out there that says, yeah, it's a great, it's a great profession because then we will have more people who come into it 
And the more people we have come into it, the better off we'll be because our animals will have enough staff to care for them instead of us losing people like we do. But that being said, a lot of it has also to do with uh, a need for better management, a need for more training. A lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm a manager. I have managed hospitals for many, many years, but I was trained as a child. I was trained to run businesses. And then I went to work in a veterinary hospital. But most of our managers are good technicians or good receptionists. And we move them into a management position and we don't teach them how to lead people. And that causes a lot of trauma and toxicity in workplace. So there's a lot that we can do. And I think that, you know, training people to be good managers, there's a lot of excellent managers out there who are sharing their knowledge uh, through like the Veterinary Hospital Managers Association. But we just have to realize, you know, veterinarians are brilliant people, but not everybody is good at everything. And so veterinarians need to be good veterinarians and they need to let managers who are talented manage their hospital and lead their people. And then I think we will all be much better. Absolutely. One thing I also really like that I've seen shift in the the venue profession is a lot of the younger generations, like I know some millennial veterinarians that are my friends, where they've really pushed to have a better work-life balance, which hasn't always existed so much in the Mm -hmm. past. And, you know, because there is such a high demand, a lot of uh, veterinary practices are looking to recruit them in different ways that may include things like having having relief vets, but also having perhaps even like different schedules for veterinarians where maybe they are are working fewer days per week, just longer hours, or they're working, you know, more structured times throughout the day, like when their kids are in school. So I'm very encouraged in seeing that 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 desire to have a better work-life balance is really starting to be met a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Have you found that as well? Mm I do see it. And, you know, it's really funny because when I managed hospitals, um, I managed my first hospital for 19 years. And then when I got out and I started consulting, I was shocked at basically the lack of structure because I'm a big believer in schedule. And so our doctors would come in at eight o'clock in the morning and then they would go to lunch at noon and they would have two hours for lunch and they would come back from two to three and see any animals that had been dropped off in the hospital. And then we closed at, at six, but we stopped taking our last patient at 530. And at 615, we walked out the door and went home. But it was organized that way. And then I got into hospitals and they're like, oh, we're here two hours after closing. And I'm just like, why? That is not good business. That's not necessary. So a lot of times veterinarians, because they are helpers, right? They, they're just born for that helper nature they have allowed their boundaries to disappear and people will call them in the night and their friends, they from high school, they haven't seen in 20 years will say, Hey, my dog is having this problem. What can I do? And instead of saying, you know what, you need to go to your veterinarian because you know, I'm this, I'm, this is my family time. They answer, you know, they answer back. Um, And managers and technicians do the same thing. They are just, you know, always, helping, always here to help. And when we don't set personal boundaries, people will continue to take advantage of us. So I I do encourage people just to learn how to say no, but let's say no graciously, you know, rather than no, I just don't do that. You say, you know what, 
I appreciate your asking, but I'm going to spend that time with my family or I have family obligations. And I'm sure you understand that because you have family too. So tomorrow morning, call the office, make an appointment, and we'll take a look and see what's going on with your pet. And so I'd also ask pet owners to also uh, be cognizant that this is our job and we don't ask you to work on your off hours. And so please don't ask us to work on ours. I like that. It's it's hard. I, I completely, even as an animal trainer, I get these questions all of the time. And a lot of it is, wow, like, and even, even from a, a veterinary perspective, it's, you know, the pet really does need to be seen. So um, uh, one thing that, that I also recommend is the mm-hmm. Pet Poison Hotline. That's a really great resource that you can check out. So that way you can get mm-hmm. that immediate help and, and ensure that your pet is definitely seen in a timely way. And <clears throat> also, as we were talking through this, I was thinking about uh, other things as well. And so another thing that you mentioned is doing what you're good at and kind of staying in your lane. And I think for some veterinarians, like they just like thrive in surgery. They, the surgery is their jam. That's what they love. Whereas other veterinarians, like my dad, he admits, he's like, I am not great in surgery, but man, I, I love being with the people. I love having that time in the exam room. And, you know, that's, that's where he really thrives. So I think that being able to have, have those ways that we kind of divide up our work as well. So that way you're, if you can be more in that, that role that you really thrive in, I think that that can also help to reduce some of that stress too. Oh yeah, I, I, I agree. And, you know, I, I can remember working with a veterinarian who didn't do any surgery. And I thought, this is weird. And this is like saying, this is part of your job and I don't want to do that part of my job. But if he wasn't comfortable in there and he enjoyed the exam room experience, kind of like your dad, then why not put people where they can flourish? And I think that's an important thing for staff members too. You know, there are technicians who love surgery, who do it very well, who are super efficient. There are others who are great in the exam room, do a great job uh, educating clients and talking to them about, you know, how to do medication care and things for their pet. So put those people where they thrive. Um, years and For years, years, I've given personality profile tests to veterinary team members. And, and so please do not put the extroverted social butterfly back in the stock room counting pills because they will be miserable. Put your detail-oriented, um, you know, compliance type personality back there because they will be in heaven. Uh, so knowing your staff and putting them in the right place on the team is very important too. You know, Marty's a little he bit of a is. social butterfly. He loves it. He <laughs> so, loves it. So am I. So we just love the front facing stuff. And there's other people who just want to put me back with the animals and never let me talk to a client. Exactly. That's okay. So with all this said, what are some ways that we can still be compassionate and kind to our pets veterinary team while still advocating for and communicating effectively on behalf of our pets? I think one of the things is just go in and understand that your the veterinary team has positive intent. That's a huge thing. They're not there to try to hoodoo you out of money. They just have a positive intent of keeping your animal well or doing what needs to be done to cure whatever problem your animal has. Uh, understand, too, that it costs money. And be upfront about what you can and cannot afford because we are a partner to you. It's not an adversarial 
um, uh, relationship. We are here to help. And if you also are honest with us, I mean, I've had dogs come into the hospital that ate, you know, bags of pot and all kinds of things that, <laughs> and I can't even tell you how many ate underwear that did not belong to the wife of the oh, house. Oh, wow. That's a new one <laughs> so, I haven't heard of. Oh, yes. That's happened. That's happened a lot. So be honest with us about what's going on. It does, you know, there's confidentiality. It doesn't go out of the exam room, but we need to honestly know so we can help. That's huge. Um, the other thing is, you know, a little bit of appreciation goes so far. And to write a note, um, to just put a positive review out there that says, we really appreciate the work that you do to bring us food because most of the time I got to tell you, a veterinary hospital, they don't stop to eat, drink, or pee. They just are hitting it hard from the time they walk in the door. And if you can bring us portable food like granola bars or something healthy, that's not you know, going to give us a sugar overload. We are so appreciative of little things like that. that make us feel like, yeah, this is really hard work. But somebody gets it. Somebody appreciates what we do. And I'm sure that 90% of our clients do appreciate the work that we do. But it's the um, the kind of hateful vocal 10% <laughs> that sticks into your mind and um, really pulls you down. So anybody who hears this, show a little love for your vet team. Man, you don't know how much oh, it means. Uh, absolutely. 100% agree with that. Any final words of advice? I think the most important thing I can tell anybody, whether they're a veterinarian or they're a client, is to really learn about good communication. Over the years, this has been what I've studied um, most of my life. Kind of, uh, this is my side project work. But the skills and abilities of learning communication, learning to have good feedback, open conflict. Uh, resolution, negotiation skills, um, understanding your own emotional intelligence, and also understanding your own trigger points is huge. So if you are angry and upset about something, have you told yourself a lie? You know, the story we tell ourselves is often not true. And the story that your veterinarian is only in it for the money is definitely a story that is a lie. Your veterinarian is not in it for the money. And the story that veterinary teams tell ourselves about owners who are neglectful is that they are intentionally neglecting their animal. But I choose to believe that it has a lot more to do with just ignorance of medicine than it, there's no negative intent behind it. People love their pets and they want to take care of them. They often just don't have the information that they need to do it well. Yes, and I and that's the other part I love about Fear Free is you were recommending pets go into their vet one or two times a year. It's so important. And a lot of pets weren't taken in in the past because of the stress of the vet visit to the pet and the extended stress to the pet parent. So that's another really cool way that Fear Free is helping out is reducing that other added barrier to going into the vet by making it a more pleasurable, fun experience and, and less stressful for everyone involved. Well, it also makes it good for the veterinary team because, you know, we're there because we really, really love animals. And we want animals to like us back. And so when animals are afraid of us, it hurts us a little bit. But when they come in and they are really excited to see us, that makes our day. 
So Fear Free does that for veterinary teams too. It makes us have much better experience in our work life because the animals who come to us are glad to see us rather than afraid of us. Such a gift talking to you today, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in every two weeks as we explore more about your pets. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any of our upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word O. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.